This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Stephen Charles AOQC and Catherine Williams. Stephen Charles is a former Judge of Appeal in the Supreme Court of Victoria and he is now a board member of the Accountability Roundtable and the Centre for Public Integrity. Catherine Williams is now Research Director of the Centre for Public Integrity. Stephen Charles and Catherine Williams joined me to discuss their new book, Keeping Them Honest, The Case for a National Integrity Commission and Other Vital Democratic Reforms. They discuss what a robust and effective Federal Integrity Commission looks like, as well as other accountability bodies and measures needed to protect our democracy from corruption. One of the issues, policy areas that has certainly taken a prominent position, not only with the independents, the Teal independents in particular, but also with the Labor Party and the Greens. These parties have said that they want a federal anti-corruption commission or an integrity commission. And we have seen, obviously, the Liberal National Party not be all that interested in introducing something that they promised to introduce before the last election, actually, before the 2019 election, they did not deliver any form of integrity commission. They did create an exposure draft and apparently there was a bill floating around, but it was never tabled in parliament for debate. And so we are going to be talking today with two experts in this area, Stephen Charles AOQC. Now, Stephen has had a distinguished career at the Victorian Bar, as well as a judge of appeal in the Supreme Court of Victoria. He is now a board member of the Accountability Roundtable and the Centre for Public Integrity. And he has actually, I can guarantee, been speaking about a federal anti-corruption watchdog for a long time. And I'm also um, delighted to welcome onto the program Catherine Williams. And she is an adjunct research fellow at the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at La Trobe University with a PhD in Arts and Law. And she is currently Research Director of the Centre for Public Integrity. So it's great to chat with both of you, Stephen and Catherine, about your new book, Keeping the Honest, The Case for a Genuine National Integrity Commission and Other Vital Democratic Reforms. It is out right now through Scribe Publications. So I welcome onto the show Stephen Charles. Hi there, Stephen. Uh, good morning, Amy. Good morning. And hi there, Catherine Williams. Hello, Amy. Thank you for having us. It's just a real pleasure to, and I um, I had a guest on the show a couple of weeks ago who was raving about your book as well. Her name was Chris Wallace, and I believe she reviewed it in the Australian Book Review, and she was very excited that this interview would be happening, and I certainly was as well, because this topic, I think, it is vital, and it has actually proven to be a priority for many voters, and it surprised some politicians who thought that this would not be a substantial issue that might sway voters because it doesn't appear to be on the face of it one of those quote-unquote bread and butter issues. But it does sound like the momentum has really gathered for a National Integrity Commission. And I wanted to get a sense from you, Stephen, your feeling in terms of how momentum has actually increased and what kind of responses you've been getting, not just from the legal and judicial profession, but also from the general public to your arguments? I must say, I think momentum certainly is building behind the proposal. Mind you, the 
proposal has now been out for a long time. Australia has been a member of the, uh, um, signed up to the UN Corruption Convention um, for 20 years. And under that convention, we are obliged to have an integrity commission. And of course, all parties, including the coalition, um, had signed up to and supported the idea of uh, an integrity commission before the 2019 election. Now, I've spoken to um, a large number of groups around the place, including on uh, radio and on television, about this. And in terms of momentum, I can only say that I have not yet had one strong complaint about uh, this idea of an anti-corruption commission, with, I suppose, the single renowned exception of Chris Merritt the Australian, who is the, the only journalist of which I'm aware um, who has positively enthused about the coalition model. And that is something which is unique because the coalition model is hopeless and a sham. Yeah, that's not really an exaggeration. In the foreword, Sir Gerard Brennan writes in his section, and I should mention to those who aren't familiar, he was a Chief Justice of the High Court of Australia. He made a really pertinent point that judges and former judges do not usually enter the public political arena because the judiciary does not have a political agenda. But there's a crucial point that he follows up with, which is that, quote, less intervention on political issues might seem inconsistent with political independence. Even former judges usually abstain from political comment. But corruption that erodes honest administration and the disregard of the rule of law in the pursuit of political power are not issues about which former judges must or should be silent. They are issues that affect the social health of the community. I wonder, do you think that that statement that was written by Sir Gerard Brennan, does that reflect some of your motivations and intentions for entering this debate? Uh, well, yes, it certainly does. I should say that back in 2011, I was appointed by Ted Bailey, then the Victorian Premier, as chair of the panel of four to advise the Victorian government on how to set up Victoria's IBAC. That was the I think the starting point of my strong interest in this area, which um, then moved on to argue, why is it that we seem to have anti-corruption bodies in every state and two of the territories, and yet none in the federal area where most of the power and money is to be found in Australia, the, the place where above all there ought to be an integrity commission. Absolutely. And I, I should bring in Catherine here in terms of your motivations as well, Catherine, especially given your commitment to research in this area, but also obviously working at the Centre for Public Integrity. What have your motivations been and have you also seen more discussion, especially around the areas that you've been writing about in terms of political donations and lobbying and, and that undue influence that seems to be happening more and more? Look, I, I think that it's been very heartening to see the increased interest in relation to political finance issues, so donations and electoral expenditure. That's been really heartening to see, and there are some sections of the media that have been doing a really excellent job in bringing awareness of those issues to the public consciousness. And I suppose one of my key 
motivation for the work that I do in this area is my concern for decaying public trust because we know that the integrity of government institutions is a key driver of public trust and social cohesion depends on public trust and therefore our very democracy depends on public trust. So I'm very concerned about this decay that we see and keen to make as best as I can a contribution to rectifying that situation. I want to pick up on something that Stephen just there mentioned. Stephen, you said you were part of that initial group who were looking at the IBAC model for Victoria and you really lay out in clear detail the New South Wales model, which we would know as ICAC or the Independent Commission Against Corruption, as well as the Victorian model, the IBAC model. And you make these comparisons between those two. You lay them out separately, but you also really highlight the deficiencies of the Victorian model, which essentially has been played around with by uh, both Liberal and Labor governments in terms of tweaking its settings and especially in more recent times when public hearings should be conducted and when they shouldn't. I wonder, you seem to think that the New South Wales model has been a particularly successful one. What do you think has been successful about the New South Wales model that perhaps the Victorian model has not adopted or has not featured? Can I start briefly with the Victorian model? In 2011, Bailey's government got into office on a promise to set up an anti-corruption commission which was to be modelled on the New South Wales ICAC. Now, the, uh, the ministerial aides got to the, the Bailey cabinet and the original form of the IBAC legislation was hopeless. That they, they became terrified. They'd been told, it'll bite you first. And so they, they muted the, the model that they first produced in 2011. The trouble was that, in effect, the Commission and its officers had to know all about the, um, the matter they wanted to investigate before they could start investigating. And it was not until the, uh, the government changed after one term, it lost office in part because it had mucked up the form of the IPAC. It wasn't until Labor came in and amended the legislation that uh, it really was able to become properly effective. Now, there are still flaws in that model, uh, which is why the New South Wales ICAC is a better and more effective form. The trouble any government has when bringing in an anti-corruption commission is that it will be aware that the, uh, the new model, if effective, will be able to investigate very closely what the government is doing. And it's likely to have members who are very frightened of what's going to happen. And that is plainly the problem with the, the present coalition government. You, you will have heard recently the, the Prime Minister make a number of preposterous statements as to why this government will not bring in now a National Anti-Corruption Commission. The, uh, the Prime Minister said, for example, that the coalition had a very good, well-thought-through proposal. Now, that's unmitigated nonsense. The um, second thing he said was that MPs should be able to allocate funding for community grants and infrastructure without undue fear of investigation. Now, that is really precisely what 
an anti-corruption commission should be able to investigate. And a very example is the sort of programs and grants which the, which the coalition has now been using for at least four years. Now, ICAC in Sydney is able to look at matters of that kind. It does so very effectively, and it does so in part with public hearings. And the problem for the coalition is that it sees ICAC operating very effectively. When the Prime Minister makes idiotic statements, such as that this is a kangaroo court, he ought to be reminded that ICAC has been repeatedly congratulated by Conservative premiers, including the present Premier, Dominic Perrottet, on the work that it is doing in reducing corruption and advising the government about present corruption. Yeah. And I did see the New South Wales ICAC Commissioner Stephen Rushton provide a response to Scott Morrison and his, as you say, ridiculous statements, especially repeating really the comment about a kangaroo court. Rushton actually said there are vast differences between the functions of the commission and a court. And essentially, he's been saying that the PM statements are essentially undermining the work of the commission, but also, I guess, the trust in it and the fact that when you kind of see politicians, especially the prime minister or caretaker prime minister saying things like that this highly respected body is a kangaroo court, if you're throwing mud, some of that mud, even if it's completely nonsensical, can eventually stick if it's said often enough and with enough force. And it seems to be of great concern, not only to yourself, but clearly to those who are currently commissioners of ICAC, including the outgoing commissioner. Well, yes, it, it obviously is. And to have the uh, um, the Prime Minister talking about the ICAC in, a, in its model as a public autocracy is really just, uh, he's talking rubbish. Now, the sort of thing that demonstrates that rubbish is that this coalition at the last election, had a number of programs and grants which were corrupt. And that's not simply my assessment of them. That's the assessment that Transparency International makes of them. Transparency has described both the sports rorts and the combat rorts as examples of political corruption. And it's the fact that it has done so, even both uh, when they were exposed by the Auditor-General. The problem, of course, is that the public was not aware of the misconduct involved in those schemes at the time of the last election. So the Auditor-General examines them and produces his reports in 2020 and um, 2021, and people now for the first time become aware that at the time of the last election, this government was engaged in corrupt spending, spending money not in the interests of the community as a whole, but to spend it on marginal electorates for the purposes of entrenching itself in office. And you write two brilliant chapters about the sports rorts and car park rorts in this book, and I, I do want to get to the detail of that, but I wanted to actually bring in the proposed model that the coalition has, as you write, been dragged kicking and screaming to. Essentially, it's called the Commonwealth Integrity Commission, the CIC, and there is, as you mentioned, an exposure draft of which your analysis is based on. And I was really interested in the fact of this difference between what corruption is 
and what criminality is and how that distinction, which does exist, is used in the coalition's model. So I wonder, first of all, could you explain the difference between corruption or corrupt conduct and criminal conduct and what an integrity commission would look at generally and what the coalition in particular is proposing in relation to corruption versus criminality? Well, can I start by pointing to the, the division in the coalition's model? Half of it is directed to law enforcement agencies, and that half is very strong. It's, it's from the viewpoint of people like um, Catherine and myself, really um, a perfectly satisfactory model. Um, people can complain even anonymously to the commission in, in the law enforcement area, they only have to have a significant matter. There is a very broad-ranging definition of corruption. It talks of corruption of any other kind. And once the matter has got into the hands of the Commission in the law enforcement area, there will be almost invariably public hearings, and there may be reports which may include findings of corrupt conduct. Now, insofar as the remainder of the coalition's model is concerned, dealing with politicians and the remainder of the public service, the average person has no right of complaint to that body. The average person can only go to one of the entities, like the Australian Federal Police, that are there, and make a complaint to them in which they will have to explain not only what it is that they say, is corrupt, but also it must involve a reasonable example or suspicion of one of a number of crimes. Now, what that means in relation to things like the sports shorts, for example, is if before the 2019 election, we, we had the coalition's model up in operation and someone had said, look, I think this is very unfair. We've got um, the... Um, marginal seats being very well um, assisted with um, sporting grounds, but the Labour electorate next door is getting nothing. Now, that would involve no suspicion of any crime at all. It simply wouldn't be there. And that being so, the Commonwealth Investigation Commission would not be able to start an investigation of the sports rorts. And similarly, if you were looking at the car park rorts where... Uh, Josh Frydenberg's electorate, Kuyong, last election, had four car parks proposed in that electorate so that the treasurer was able to go around and tell people in his electorate, look, this is um, how well my government's doing. I'm be being able to provide you with four car parks, which were going to be valued at about $65 million. Now, again, the fact that he was able to say, I've got uh, four car parks and um, all of that money coming into my electorate, there's nothing obviously criminal about that at all, no reasonable suspicion of any crime. So again, an investigation could not start. It was only when the Auditor General was able to look at it in 2021, I think it was, that he was able to say there were no merit criteria, there were no guidelines, there was no business case made in relation to these car parks. All that happened was there was a lot of interaction between the Prime Minister's office and the City Minister's office, that's Mr Tudge's office, and they received complaints and requests from sitting members who were 
standing for re-election and candidates, and the um, sitting members and candidates got car parks allocated to them, and most of which, I should add, still have not been built. There are 47 proposed, and I think only six or seven have, in fact, been built. And as you say in the book, even some councils, when they said, actually, this doesn't suit us and it doesn't make actual sense, in a policy sense, the federal government threatened to withdraw funding from them. Yes. And in the case of the the Treasurer, when people in his electorate started to complain vigorously that they didn't want the proposed car parks because they were going to increase congestion rather than reduce it, then um, the Treasurer said, well, very sensibly, all right, we'll cancel them. That really is an admission that they ought not to have been there in the first place at the 2019 election. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to also bring in this discussion around public hearings because that is really a sticking point for the coalition. But funnily enough, it appears that they're okay for public hearings when it applies to law enforcement agencies, but not when it comes to parliamentarians and staffers and the the public sector. What are your thoughts on public hearings? Because there is a really crucial section where you address the value of public hearings and just how critical they are to an effective commission against corruption and an integrity commission at the federal level. Well, let me take the Victorian IBAC. Everyone in Victoria, when the IBAC came in in 2011, thought in Victoria that we were were pretty well a corruption-free state, which is the state of mind plenty of people in South Australia have about their state. Now, when the Operation Ord, which was the investigation of the Education Department, began, after detailed private hearings, they then had a public hearing, at which point Victorians, for the first time, became aware that there was massive corruption in the Education Department, where people at the very top of the Education Department were setting up a system which enabled them to cream off millions of of dollars of Victorian education and monies to give themselves a very high lifestyle. Now, the effect of those hearings taking place in public were that for the first time, Victorians became aware that there was indeed corruption in our state. The public service became aware of it. The education department changed its rules and procedures while the public hearings were actually taking place to ensure that nothing like that could happen again. There were a large number of complaints which of different types of corruption which came into IBAC in consequence. And one of the reasons for having public hearings is just, just like prison sentences. They are there as a deterrent to stop people from acting corruptly and indeed just engaging in the sort of misconduct that is involved in spending huge amounts of taxpayers' money, not in the taxpayers' interests, but in simply shoring up people in marginal seats. That particular example was very striking, and you certainly had no lack of examples in all of the commissions that you talk about, and it's something that also you talk about historically as well as just how valuable it's been. For example, in the Fitzgerald Inquiry way back in Australian history, and there were some others as well that you that you go through, one thing that I really was interested in was the fact that 
polling has shown that over 70% of Australians want a federal corruption commission that is able to hold public hearings. So this question of public hearings and it's supposedly leading to unfair reputational damage, it seems that that claim that the coalition, especially the prime minister, has put forward just doesn't really stack up, especially because, as you point out in the book, that already a great deal of investigation will have been undertaken to get to the point of a public hearing and that these aren't things that are undertaken lightly by a commissioner. Again, that is absolutely right. There must be detailed investigation beforehand to ensure that reputations are not damaged by accident. Now, when the Prime Minister talks, as he recently has, about the appalling nature of uh, ICAC's investigations and uh, how reputations are going to be damaged and how they've damaged the reputations of three premiers. That is, of course, all nonsense. And the reality is that he he talked of Mr Greiner and uh, Mr O'Farrell. Mr O'Farrell was one who had repeatedly congratulated um, ICAC on its work, but neither Mr Greiner nor Mr O'Farrell have ended up with damaged reputations at all. Mr Greiner is now at the very top of both business and political circles. Mr O'Farrell is now a high commissioner, I think, in India. And neither of them were ousted by ITEC itself. Mr Greiner resigned and was then the finding against him was overturned in the Court of Appeal. And Mr O'Farrell had no finding against him at all. He should simply have returned to the ICAC the next day and apologised for having forgotten something. Yes, no, you made such an excellent point there about the bottle of wine, which obviously that was a big moment in New South Wales politics. I guess it took everyone by a bit of surprise. Stephen, we have been talking about the state-based anti-corruption commissions. We've also been talking about the coalition's proposed integrity commission. And uh, of course, they're not the only ones who have proposals forward. The Labor Party does, as well as independents do and the Greens. Now, I know that you have, with colleagues, put forward what you think are the essential ingredients or elements for an integrity commission at the national level. And they all do seem like very straightforward, but kind of crucial ingredients. I wonder whether we could just outline what you think they are that need to be pushed by a Labor government, for example. And also then we can head into what you perceive to be some of the fundamental flaws with the coalition's arguments around who can be accountable in their model. Right. We argue that the National Integrity Commission has to have a broad jurisdiction, a jurisdiction which would enable it to pick up things like the sports rorts and the car park rorts and examine them. There should not be thresholds which it has to overcome to get there. Anyone should be able to complain to the body. It should have the powers of a Royal Commission to summon people and call them up to give evidence. It should be able, when it's in the public interest to do so, to have public hearings, and it should be able to make public reports. Now, the coalition model fails on just about every one of those things. Its jurisdiction is, now I'm talking not about the law enforcement part, that law enforcement part really is adequate in relation to each of those matters, which I've said we recommend. But for politicians 
and the remainder of the public service, the jurisdiction is very limited. The threshold is that you've got to have a reasonable suspicion of a particular type of crime. You may not make direct complaints to the Commission. You've got to go through one of these agencies like the Federal Police or the Border Force and make your complaint to them and persuade them that you've got a reasonable case of a crime. There will be no public hearings and any reports. But the most ridiculous thing of all is that reports in relation to politicians may not contain any finding or even criticism express or even implied about a politician, which really is, is the total giveaway about mm. what's going on. Yes. One last point about public hearings. The coalition and the Prime Minister, you've heard a lot, saying, oh, no, no, we, we can't have these damages reputations and it's a kangaroo court. Well, the Prime Minister is perfectly happy to have his kangaroo court operating in relation to law enforcement areas where there will be public hearings and public reports. He's perfectly happy to have kangaroo courts in relation to things like the commission conducted by Kenneth Hayne into the, the banking system. And the Prime Minister knows perfectly well that there is Commonwealth legislation, the uh, Parliamentary Commission's Judicial Misbehaviour Act of 2012, which will investigate allegations of misbehaviour against judges and which by Section 23 of that Act may be in public. So he's perfectly happy for investigations into judicial misbehaviour up to the High Court to take place in public, but not in relation to politicians. Now, what worse hypocrisy can you imagine than that? No, I really can't. It almost seems that it's set up to exonerate anyone who might possibly have engaged in any form of corrupt conduct. You've taken my words out of my mouth. Yeah, and, and you do write that essentially we would be worse off having something like this as it applies to parliamentarians than having nothing at all. So it seems that we don't want to set up something which is doomed to fail and that will need to be changed and amended by subsequent governments. I agree. It's a, it's a sham and a fraud. Yeah, yeah. Therefore, if you're thinking about the model that you proposed, are there parties or independents out there who seem to reflect the model that you've proposed in, in what they've outlined in their policy platforms? Helen Haynes' model and the work which was done by Cathy McGowan beforehand, the two members for INDI, is really a, a, a pretty good model. Um, I, I wouldn't say it's entirely satisfactory and be almost impossible to produce one from a, a private member's position. But I think it, it's a really a, a very, very good starting point and well done to them. Now, most of the crossbenchers, as far as I'm aware, and the Labour Party have signed up to the aspects that we and all the others um, who've been putting forward for a National Integrity Commission have asked for. And they've all been waiting for one of these bills to come up in Parliament so that there can be discussion about this. What the government has done by refusing to allow even the Helen Haynes model to be discussed is they've prevented any sensible discussion, sensible and informed discussion, to take place in Parliament so that the community could work out what was the best and most acceptable way of having an integrity commission which would work but which would not do harm and unnecessary damage to reputations at the same time. Mm, 
Yeah. Well, thank you so much for explaining that, Stephen, because I think that will help many listening make up their minds. If this is one of the key voting items in Integrity Commission at the federal level, I know that um, they'll be very curious and interested to hear what you've just said. Catherine, I'll bring you in here because we are in the midst of an election. There is really, you know, getting into the crunch time with just under two weeks to go. And some of your crucial areas here in your chapters deal with election-related matters. And in particular, I'm thinking about electoral expenditure. I was really shocked to read in your section that unlike their federal counterpart, uh, nearly all Australian states and territories impose some form of electoral expenditure caps. It appears that Victoria is not one of them, though. Could you tell us a little bit about the role of money and electoral expenditure in campaigns and what some of the current issues are at the federal level that are kind of glaring to you that could be acted upon and legislated for? Sure. So money in politics can have a really distorting effect on elections. So we say that money can compromise the integrity of our elections insofar as it um, produces a playing field for candidates. That is not level. And as you say, uh, the Commonwealth, at the Commonwealth level, we don't have any form of expenditure cap versus almost all other states and, uh, and territories. And as you say, Victoria is an outlier. We hope that at the end of this year, after the statutory review that's required under the Electoral Act here, that situation might change. And I, I hope the situation in Western Australia will be changing in the near future also. But because of the lack of a cap at federal level, we see that, of course, candidates with better resources, parties with better resources are better able to reach the electorate and ensure that their messages get out there. That isn't what an election contest should be based on. And there's a really you know, an important quote, a recognition of this, this problem from the former Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales, who said that when the ability for parties to fight an election or to communicate with the electorate is proportionate to their resources, elections are reduced to barely more than auctions. And effectively, that's the situation we have here. So what we would really need to see is an expenditure cap framework introduced at the federal level that captures expenditure not only by candidates endorsed and unendorsed, also by parties, also by then associated entities. We need to ensure there's aggregation provisions in place, that there's an anti-circumvention offence so that people aren't able to get around the regulations. And there needs to be appropriate enforcement of any framework that's adopted. And we know enforcement can be a difficulty from the previous audit by the Auditor-General of the AEC's administration of the financial disclosure framework under the Commonwealth Electoral Act. So they, they, we know that there are some difficulties there. One of the difficulties might be the kind of penalties that the AEC is able to impose for breach of campaign finance laws. We need, say, the capacity for them to be able to impose administrative penalties in the case of a breach that's a straightforward matter of fact, as they can in the case of a person who fails to vote when they were supposed to vote. So we need all those ingredients and enforcement is, is a critically important factor. And that 
you know, in a sense, ties us into this issue we have with accountability institutions also at the federal level. But perhaps before we go we go there, it's helpful when we're talking about money in politics to also address the lax Commonwealth donations regulation. So at the moment, we have at the Commonwealth level a threshold of $14,500 before a donation needs to be disclosed. That's substantially higher than the donation threshold that's in place in any state or territory. And there's no justification for that. It's one of the reasons why we've ended up in a situation where at a federal level, we had in the last financial year almost $70 million, which is almost 40% of party income, that was of unexplained origin, what we talk about as hidden money or dark money. And if we're looking at the amount of dark money that's infiltrated our political system since 1999, we're looking at almost $1.4 billion. So we really need to reform political finance law in order to remedy that situation. We need caps on donations. We need real-time disclosure of donations also so that people are aware of what donations are being made you know within a short period after they're made not months and months after an election has happened because voters want to know who is perhaps seeking to have influence at a particular time and particularly in the in the lead up to an election the imposition of caps is a really important aspect of the reform we call for because that ties in with expenditure caps to achieving a more level playing field and to stopping the donations arms race that we see going on where major parties in particular are vying for donations at what cost of course to the integrity of public administration. That's absolutely true. And I know it will ring true for people listening because you do mention Clive Palmer and his United Australia Party, not to be confused with the one from history. It's an entirely different one. But we have seen big yellow billboards almost anywhere and everywhere, even in Victoria, which is not necessarily such a focus for Clive Palmer, but we have seen them even way before the election campaign. It seems that wealthy individuals and parties are able to saturate the market, and you point out that that can actually also make it even more unequal and unfair because it can drive up the price of advertising when it becomes scarce and when there's more competition. It can make it harder for perhaps independents who aren't as well-funded or parties who don't have as many donations as the major parties, they might struggle to capture the attention and the minds of voters and get their message out. That's absolutely right. And it's, it's another one of the key reasons for why we need expenditure caps in place. I agree with you. Those yellow signs are really ubiquitous at the moment. And that is a luxury that other candidates and parties simply can't afford. And I think probably we would all agree when we look you know, at a concrete example like that, that it would be preferable to have people able to compete on the same kind of level, not having an obscenely wealthy individual able to distort an election outcome.
And thinking also still on the topic of wealthy individuals, because they are people who might donate to a party in those small amounts under the disclosure cutoff, and perhaps they donate through trusts or different vehicles so that their name isn't necessarily associated with their donation. Are there ways at the moment for wealthy people in Australia to donate money and not have to reveal themselves through the disclosure laws that currently exist? Well, they are supposed to aggregate donations for the the purposes of disclosure. But of course, if you have individuals with different business ventures and trusts, it might be possible for them to hide the provenance of the separate donations and therefore avoid aggregation. And that is effectively seeking to circumvent the scheme. So that's why we need to ensure that Mm. as well as appropriately stronger regulation, we have a specific anti-circumvention offence. Yeah. And it certainly relates to lobbying as well, because that's something which a lot of power and influence is involved. And you point out that there's different expectations sometimes when people make donations, whether that be something like a quid pro quo, which you say, or something maybe less direct and a bit more vague, which is more about access and influence and people wanting the ear of a certain minister over a certain policy. And that there are perhaps understandings around the kind of thing that they get back from a donation. People aren't being altruistic here. They're not donating to end poverty in Africa. Could you just expound on that unspoken, perhaps, understanding between a donor and a party or a politician? Yes, look, I very much agree with you that there are, if not explicit, potentially tacit understandings around what the making of particularly large donations might enable for that the maker of that donation. It's one of the reasons that CAPS are really essential so that we're all able to have exactly the same amount of influence. And if we look at industry players who continue to make very large donations, I suppose we would have to assume that if they are rational entities, they are getting what they want for their donations. And while it might not be that the case that there's an explicit agreement about what is to be exchanged, it might be that access becomes easier. And that access is to us invisible because, again, at the Commonwealth level, we don't have disclosure of ministerial diaries. So we, you know, Australian people don't know how it is that our ministers and very senior officials are spending their time. If we had access to ministerial diaries, we could link that up with the donations disclosure database and perhaps start to understand whether there's a correlation, as indeed we suspect there might be, between the makers of donations, particularly large or frequent ones, and ability to gain access. Yeah. And you point out that that's not a new thing, that essentially in Queensland, New South Wales and the ACT, they all require that ministerial diaries be published. So once again, it seems like that's a a ripe opportunity for a federal government and a parliament to require of ministers. And also given that, as you point out, and as Stephen points out, the ministerial code of conduct is another thing that seems essentially very flaky and 
is enforced by the person who would essentially probably have a conflict of interest in any of the issues that might arise with a minister. That's exactly right. That to have um, a code of conduct enforced by the leader of a government who clearly doesn't have any incentive to draw attention to the wrongdoing of his or her ministers is seriously problematic. So we need to get in place an independent enforcement mechanism there. And not only, when we're talking about codes of conduct, not only does the ministerial code need to be bolstered, we need in place a code of conduct that is applicable to all parliamentarians. We see that in comparable jurisdictions like the UK, also in Canada, And unfortunately, even though it's a topic that's been discussed in Australia since the 1970s, we're still in 2022 in a situation where our parliamentarians are not required to meet a certain minimum level of conduct. Yeah, absolutely. This is obviously an area that we've heard people in the public speak about for a while and we've not really seen movement on it, but it does seem that with the advent of this push for an integrity commission that perhaps some of these other areas that we've been discussing here with yourself, Catherine, might have the chance to actually be brought forward to have a go at being part of perhaps a package of electoral reforms and donations reforms. How hopeful are you that you might see this happen in the next parliament or perhaps the parliament after that? We are hopeful that there will be a real push for political finance reform because along with the Integrity Commission, it's a really urgent area requiring attention. If we want to stop state capture and if we want to ensure that we can hold our politicians to account for the way in which they spend their time and the decisions that they make, we simply must have reform in this area. So we're hopeful that there'll be sufficient support for at least some of them in the next parliament. There are as well other essential reforms around. You spoke with Stephen about grants administration like the sports rorts and the car park rorts, the the system at the moment that we have governing grants administration is deficient and it really needs urgent attention. So that's another area as well as political finance reform that we hope will receive some attention with the next parliament. Thank you, Catherine, for that. And just finally, I wanted to put the um, the last question to you, Stephen, and give you the last word in response to Bridget McKenzie, who was questioned by the ABC's Michael Rowland on ABC Breakfast TV about that sports rorts program and um, what has been called, quote-unquote, pork barrelling. Now, there are some people in the media who say pork barrelling and think, well, you know, isn't that just part and parcel of elections? I've seen parties direct more funding to the areas that they want to win government over, et cetera, et cetera. Isn't this something that Labor and Liberals both do? You clearly lay out in the book that sports rorts does not just come under the guise of pork barrelling. And Michael Rowland said to Bridget McKenzie that you said it amounts to political corruption. And Michael asked Bridget what her response to that was. She said to him, what you would see as pork barrelling is what in the National Party we say is delivering for our electorates. I just thought I'd love to give you the last word because I think that some people may not understand how this is uh, more than pork barrelling. And if we haven't hammered it home yet, I just wanted to let you um, give everyone an understanding of just what that means and, and what the difference is. Right. Well, when 
evidence was given to the Senate inquiry into the, the uh, sports shorts, four of Australia's leading um, academics in constitutional law and to me, uh, Carol Saunders, Michael Cromlin and Geoffrey Lindell, they really are the top of our academic constitutional lawyers. They said that what had happened in the sports shorts was a serious breach of the rule of law that it was unauthorised executive spending of taxpayers' money. There was absolutely no statutory authority for it. And that it was also in breach of sections like Section 71 of the Public Accountability, etc. Act. And it was, it was unconstitutional. It was a defiance of three decisions of the High Court. Now, to say that that is mere pork-barrelling is complete um, travesty of, of language. What took place was said immediately by Professor A.J. Brown, a board member of Transparency National. He said, no, that's political corruption. And the Australian published it. Now, that's what um, is so, so wrong with uh, Bridget McKenzie's understanding and statement about these things. Transparency um, has looked at these grants, has said that no, they are political corruption and transparency has then dropped Australia in a decade from seventh position international 11 levels down to 18th. That's a huge drop in our standing and in our international reputation. Now, we want a National Integrity Commission which will stop all people in Parliament, both sides, from engaging in this corruption, this gross misconduct, it's not directed at one side, it's directed at everyone because this sort of misconduct of pork barreling is, is a gross and economic waste of taxpayers' money where it's going, for example, in the sports shorts, half a million was awarded, I don't know if it was ever paid, half a million to the Mosman Rowers Club in Tony Abbott's electorate. Now, at the same time, all sorts of empty spaces in the north where uh, First Nations people were playing football on gravel, but they didn't get anything. Mm. It's, it's that gross waste taxpayers' money, which is, uh, as much as anything, appalling, taken with the fact that it's an attempt by an unpopular government to entrench itself in office by the misuse of taxpayers' money. Yep. And there were so many, as you say, community groups who applied who were deemed meritorious and then did not receive funding. And those who did not even meet the threshold in many cases did receive funding clearly through other criteria that um, the minister used. So thank you so much, Stephen and Catherine, for taking the time to explain these issues in detail to us, because I think it certainly will provide those listening with an ability to make a confident decision about whether this is an issue they think is worth voting over. Certainly, I think we should reassert the point that it does erode trust in our democracy and that is a precious thing. So I really thank you for your time today and I hope people can check out your book, Keeping Them Honest, The Case for a Genuine National Integrity Commission and Other Vital Democratic Reforms, which is out through Scribe. Thank you both, Stephen and Catherine. Thank you, Amy. I was just speaking with Stephen Charles QC and Catherine Williams. Stephen was a former judge of appeal in the Supreme Court of Victoria, now a board member of the Accountability Round Table and the Centre for Public Integrity, Catherine Williams being an adjunct research fellow at La Trobe and also research director of the Centre for Public Integrity. 
I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.